Well, grab your Bibles, if you would, and open them to 2 Peter. 2 Peter, if you need a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. And 2 Peter, almost near the very end. 2 Peter chapter 1 this morning. And as you're turning it, I think you all know there's a simple fact of life that all living things grow. All living things grow. It's a, it's so, it's a fact that's so certain that it may even be considered a part of the definition of life. A living thing will grow. Even after an organism has reached its adult size and no longer getting larger, it's still growing. Millions of new cells are being produced every day. It's just all living things grow. And it's amazing how much some things grow. Just think about the blue whale. The blue whale, the largest animal in existence, its average length is 100 feet. Average weight is 170 tons. Its tongue alone is three tons. Its mouth can hold 90 tons of water, although it would choke on anything larger than a beach ball, by the way. But the growth of the blue whale is remarkable. You think a nine-pound human baby is is really large? A blue whale calf is born at about 6,000 pounds, which is the size of a fully grown hippopotamus. But they still have a long way to go, and they'll grow 30 times as large over their life. In the first seven months of their life, the blue whale calf drinks about 110 gallons of milk a day. And later, they'll pack on about 200 pounds of weight a day. And that's some growth right there. That's a lot of growth. You may be interested to know, however, that blue whales, they're not even close to being the largest living organism on the planet. They're not even close. That title belongs to the aspen tree. Aspen trees, they grow in connected colonies where thousands of trees are actually all attached together. Their root structure is the same. And so they're considered a single living organism. And the largest aspen colony is regarded as the the largest and heaviest living thing on the planet. It covers 106 acres and weighs an estimated 6,600 tons. And that's, again, that's a lot of growth. And speaking of trees, we've got several record holders here in California, if you didn't know. The oldest tree, the tallest tree, and the largest tree are all in our backyard in California. The oldest tree is the Great Basin Bristlecone Pine named the Methuselah Tree, named after the figure in the Bible, Methuselah, who lived longer than anyone at 969 years. It's a fitting name, but the Methuselah Tree has Methuselah Beet, It's estimated to be about 4,800 years old. Then there's the tallest tree. It's the coast redwood named the Hyperion tree, measuring in at 379 feet tall. That's taller than the Statue of Liberty, the statue itself. And then there's the largest tree by volume. It's it's the giant sequoia named General Sherman. It's the largest single-stem tree on the planet. It's 275 feet tall, has a diameter of 25 feet, and its volume is, or it's rather estimated to be 2,500 years old. A branch of this tree broke off in 2006, just a branch, and the branch was 100 feet long and had a diameter of 7 feet. And that's larger than most normal trees. And what's amazing thing about when you think about these record-breaking trees, though, is that they all started the same way. They all started as just a tiny little sprout shooting out of the ground. Then came a few more leaves and a few more turned into a little sapling, finally into a mature tree. But they didn't stop there. As long as they're alive, they keep growing. They keep reaching up. And this basic rule of physical life is the same for spiritual life, that all living things grow. As long as you're alive on this planet, you should be growing spiritually. And it's something that should happen naturally, just as physical growth is part of the natural order of physical life, so spiritual growth is part of the natural order of spiritual life. And whereas that that baby blue whale and all mammals rely on milk for their earliest growth, so we, as believers, rely on, on spiritual milk, God's word for growth. Like we learned in 1 Peter Chapter 2, verse 2, he said, Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. This growth that God wants takes place after salvation. Before salvation, you're spiritually dead. Dead people don't grow. Dead things don't grow. They can't. 
Those in the flesh, those not born again, cannot please the Lord. They cannot grow. They're not able to do so. But once you're made alive in Christ by faith in Him, once you are born again, you can naturally start growing and you naturally will start to grow to become more like Christ. Spiritually, over time, you'll resemble the Savior. Ephesians 4.15 says, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. And now this morning, we come to 2 Peter Now, as you can guess, we've got a passage that deals with spiritual growth. Last Sunday, we started a brand new study in the book of the Bible, 2 Peter. We covered the first four verses, but but right after these opening verses, immediately, Peter brings up this issue of spiritual growth. And he's got a lot to say about spiritual growth. He talks about it over and over. You might wonder, why does he have so much to say about spiritual growth? Why does he bring this up so often? Well, there's a couple of reasons for this. For one, teaching on spiritual growth is part of any believer's most basic foundation. Spiritual growth is essential learning, something you should learn right away. And remember, new believers are coming into the church all the time. And for them, this is, this is the basics. This is something they, it's new to them, and they must know. They need to learn about this spiritual growth. At the same time, for those older in the faith, This may not be earth-shattering and new, but it's always convicting, and and by way of reminder, we need to constantly become aware and and reminded of our need to grow. So spiritual growth is always something good to talk about, but there is a more direct occasion for Peter bringing this up so often in 2 Peter, and that has to do with false teachers. The rise of false teachers among the churches largely motivates Peter to write his second letter, and with their presence and their false teaching, the church is at risk of being swept into error. So, so what's the safeguard against error, against false teaching? It is spiritual growth. Strengthening the foundation of believers is the best way to prop them up against attack, having a solid foundation. We live in California, so you all know. After an earthquake, what's the first part of your house that you check for damage, or that you should? Your foundation. Check for the cracks. And if it is damaged, what's the first part of your house that you fix? The foundation. Foundation, it's the most important part of your house. And the same thing goes spiritually. So don't underestimate the importance of these foundational concerns, especially when you're up against something like falsehood or false teachers. Learning about spiritual growth and putting into practice is entirely for God's glory and your benefit. It's a good thing for the tree to grow tall, its roots stretching deep into the earth. And such a tree is going to stand. It's not going to fall over at the the heaviest wind. And the same goes for you. You want to grow as spiritually tall as possible, as spiritually deep as possible, so that you too might always stand in whatever comes. Just so that you can see this with your own eyes, look how Peter ends his letter. Before we get to the beginning, Look at the ending, the last two verses of this letter in 2 Peter. And notice how with his final words, he reinforces this most important topic. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 17-18. He says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. It's a warning against these false teachers. But... Verse 18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. And today what we're going to find is that Peter begins in much the same way that he ends, he bookends this letter with some critical teaching on spiritual growth. In verses 5 through 9, right after talking about salvation, he talks about that which is The next most important thing on top of that is spiritual growth. And here he gives a a depiction of that growth and instructions for it and what we're going to look at today. Let's read along 2 Peter chapter 1, our verses for today, verses 5 through 9. He continues by saying, Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith supply 
moral excellence. In your moral excellence, knowledge. In your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. This passage is essentially simple, but it's convicting and it's very instructive. And from this passage, we want to find three instructions for spiritual growth so that you might please the Lord by growing. Three instructions for spiritual growth. The first comes by way of the diligence to grow. So number one, the diligence to grow. In verse five, the diligence to grow. Here in verse five, Peter's beginning to make a comment on spiritual growth, but but first he connects that with what he said before. And notice the transition that, that begins in verse five. He says, now for this very reason also, he's pointing back. What he's about to say on spiritual growth is building off of what he just said in verses 1 through 4 about salvation. Peter knows this. Your ability to grow is based off of your your new life, your your new birth. And so what has he already said? What what is he building off of in verses 3 through 4 as he gets into verse 5? As we learn, he's saying through Christ, God has given to us everything we need for life and godliness. Verse 3, he's given us all of his promises. He's enabled us to partake in eternal life. In a word, it would be grace. God has given us all grace in Christ. And can a plant grow without sunlight? Of course not. It doesn't have a chance. The light is its means of growth, its means of life. And nor can we be saved or sanctified without God's light, his divine favor, But what Peter just finished saying in verses 3 and 4 is that God has already given you his light. He's given you his grace already in Christ through the Spirit. You have everything you need for life and godliness. The the way is fully paved now for you to grow. All that's left is for you to grow. And so he's saying, for this very reason, verse 5, because of all that, now it's time for you to get moving. Now it's time for you to grow. Since we have God's grace and God's resources already in Christ, we are to be, verse 5, he says, diligent, applying all diligence. This word for applying or giving literally means to bring alongside, to add to something. To God's divine provision of daily grace, we are to bring alongside our diligence. This is talking about the spiritual sweat you are to exert in your growth. God's grace underlies our salvation and our sanctification, that process of of growing. But when it comes to that, that sanctification, that process of growing, unlike salvation, God expects us to work. Your effort has a role when it comes to your growth. I want to be clear and explain this. There's a little confusion around this topic. Get a little bit theological on you. Your salvation, your regeneration, it's called monergistic. It means God alone is responsible. It is his work, your salvation. But your sanctification, that process of growing, it's called synergistic. It means it's a cooperative work with you and God. Now surely this is no equal cooperation between God's work and our work. God's work in sanctification, your growth, his work is primary. He enables you to work. But after he supplies all grace, he commands us, therefore, to to get to work. It's a God-dependent effort. Without Christ's work, without the Spirit enabling us, you can't do anything. You can't do anything to please the Lord. But now that we have salvation, now that we have grace in Christ and the power of, of the Spirit, we can and should work. This is what Philippians 2 says, the same thing, verses 12 and 13. It says, to you a command... Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
He's saying you get to work, for God is already at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. And our verse in 2 Peter is saying the same thing. Just picture this. Picture a power saw. It's a tool useful for a lot of work. You can get a lot done with a power saw. But for a power saw to work, it needs to be plugged in. An unplugged power saw is also known as worthless. It's not going to do anything for you. And see, the, the unregenerate person, the person before salvation, they're like the unplugged power saw. They can't do any work to please the Lord. They're not able to. They have no power. They're, they're not able to, to please the Lord through anything. What happens at salvation? God plugs you in. At salvation, God plugs you into the wall. He, he provides to you. He supplies to you power through the Spirit, the electricity of the Spirit, you could say, to do all things. He gives you everything you need to now work. This is what God does for you. But once you're plugged in, there's still one thing left to do. Flip the on switch and then get to work. And that is your role. That is what God calls you to do. He has supplied you what you need But now you are to put that into use. You can and you should, as the verse says, build on your faith. The main command in verse 5 is to supply. We are to supply. You might be wondering, well, what exactly does that mean, to supply in this this regard? The word for supply comes from a Greek word, korygos. Korygos refers to a choir leader, a chorus leader. You might remember in the ancient Greeks, they were known for their plays. It was like their movie business, these plays, dramas, tragedies, comedies. They started it all. But they were very expensive. These were expensive productions, and and the largest expense were these choruses required for the production. Just think like a modern Broadway musical. All the people you have to hire to put that on. It was expensive. Well, back in the golden age of Athens, the wealthiest citizens would, would pay for it themselves. They would take it upon themselves to pay for these plays, And primarily, they would be paying for or supplying the needs of these choruses, all the people who were involved. And so they eventually became called choregos, chorus leaders, chorus suppliers. And this word in the Greek eventually came to refer to anyone, anyone who richly supplies another person with what they need. And that that word we have in this verse here, and what he's saying is, that's you now, your the Korygos, you're the supplier. And you are to supply yourself. You are to supply your own soul with what it needs to please God. You are to supply yourself with these virtues that he's about to list in which God is glorified. It's another way of saying to, to grow. Now, do you see how that this work of supplying in verse 5, it comes out of your faith? We're not being told to supply faith. Faith is primary. It's already there. It's talking about the person who already has faith in Christ. But if you do, this is the faith development that God wants to see. It's really like James said in James 2.20. He said, faith without works is dead. The one who claims to have a saving faith, but that faith never bears fruit. It's just all talk, but it never, never grows, never bears fruit. That person is a phony. But true faith is like a seedbed out of which the tree of righteousness grows, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. The virtues that Peter is about to list in verses 5 through 7 all spring from your faith, and they're the results of a Spirit-led life. So to sum this up, God has given you, he's already given you many divine gifts. That's what we learned last week. What he's already given to you, new life, spiritual resources, his promises. He's enabled you to partake in his eternal life. This doesn't mean you become a little God, but we share in his divine life. And so we should come to resemble his divine life. God is glorified when we live to be like him. We make use of his gifts and we strive to be like Christ. That is how he is pleased. And for this, spiritual sweat is required. If this is the case, we we come now to the second instruction for spiritual growth here. The second instruction. If we are are indeed to strive by God's grace, what are we striving after? What are we striving for? And the second instruction 
comes by way of the virtues to pursue. Secondly now, the virtues to pursue. These he lists in verses 5 through 7. We'll read this again. Secondly now, the virtues to pursue. Verse 5, he says, For this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply, and here comes the list, moral excellence. In your moral excellence, knowledge. In your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. In your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. So here we have a list of, of virtues, these Christian characteristics that we should possess and pursue. And there are many lists like this in the Bible, in the New Testament. You may be familiar with the list of virtues or fruit of the Spirit, as they're called from Galatians chapter 5. It's the same idea. They, they paint a quick and rough portrait of godliness. Most times these characteristics are just listed down, written down. Sometimes, like here in Second Peter, they've got a little bit of structure to them. Now, there's no real order to these virtues, but Peter presents them as if one is chained to the other. And we can see how they relate to one another, how they feed off of one another. But all of these, these fruits or these virtues should be cultivated in your life at all times. So with that being said, let's dive into this list of godly characteristics, these virtues to pursue, just so that we understand what we're after, what we're striving for, what we're trying to grow to be like by God's grace. And there are seven to look at, seven specific virtues to pursue. First one is this, moral excellence. Moral excellence or virtue in other translations. This word builds off of the Greek word or idea of virtue, which refers to the highest fulfillment of something. You know, we don't really talk like this, but for example, if you had a a virtuous pair of scissors, that would mean they cut really well. They do what they're supposed to do with excellence. If you had a virtuous car, it would run with excellence. And normally, though, we think of virtue in relation to people. And so a virtuous person is one who lives with excellence. He or she lives a morally good life, a life of uprightness or excellence. And for Christians, such a life of excellence is modeled and embodied in Christ. He is the example of a perfect life, the only example of a perfect life, the virtuous life. He did all things right. And if you aim to grow, you should be aiming for him. You should be striving to be like him, morally excellent in all respects. This is a good way to start this list. All of these characteristics that Peter is going to describe can be considered as, as virtues, as, as characteristics that are perfectly modeled by Christ. Secondly comes knowledge in this list. I told you last week that this idea of knowledge was going to be a big theme in Second Peter, the, the theme of knowledge. And here it is. Here it is again, already for the third time. The knowledge that he's talking about here, it's, it's a practical knowledge. It's the knowledge that leads you to know right from wrong. If you're going to pursue moral excellence or excellence in living, you need to know what that is. You need some basic knowledge. And thankfully, for some of you, we're not talking about knowledge of math or science. There's always some in the room who are in school, you know, just math and science, not their thing. It should be obvious, this is talking about knowledge of God. This is a spiritual knowledge. Or as Colossians 1.9 puts it, it's a knowledge of his will. And as Christians, you should become experts in one field at least, and that is God. You should get to know your God and his will. This is a basic knowledge. Then we're going to talk a lot more about knowledge, this true knowledge in Second Peter. It's going to come up over and over. But, but far be it from any Christian to fall into moral error because he or she didn't know better. You know, you say, oh, I didn't even know that was a sin. So that's entirely unacceptable. That, that basic knowledge you should have, knowledge of God and his will, is just essential for growth, to at least know his will. Third, in this list, we have self-control. Self-control. word for self-control is used most, mostly of athletes in the ancient world. You think of that, 
that classic Greek marathon runner, the precursor to our modern Olympians. He's just striving. He's beating his body. He's disciplining himself to run, to win. He has self-control. He's limiting himself. He's not eating what other people eat. He's not drinking what other people drink. He's not doing what other people do because he's got a higher purpose. He's striving after something. He's training. He's running. Spiritually, you need the same discipline. Discipline over yourselves. Self-control. Call that self-control. Today, we hear the opposite thing. We, we are told the opposite message today. Today, we're not, we're not told to control the self or to deny the self, the, these sinful heart desires that we have. We are told to embrace the self, to indulge the self. You do whatever your self wants. That's the message. The greatest sin you can commit in the world today, by the world's standards, is self-denial and self-control. But if you're serious about, about striving after godliness, you can pretty much safely do the opposite of whatever the world tells you to do. Instead, seeing sin as truly sinful, control yourself, deny your sinful desires. As, as Paul says in Galatians 5, crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. Do not let them control you. You need a self-control. Next on our list, we have perseverance. Perseverance. It's the power of endurance. This is the result of a, per, a persistent self-control. The self-control you need in the Christian life, it needs to last a lifetime. Perseverance is needed. To be perseverant means to be steady and steadfast under a heavy load, whether that comes by way of temptation or suffering or persecution. You endure whatever comes your way and you, you persevere. You do what is right. And we talked a lot about this endurance in First Peter. And let me just remind you of this, though. Your perseverance in life, your ability to endure through life, it is tied in with your hope. Your perseverance is tied with your hope. Now, any human can endure difficulty so long as they have hope. You can make it through a lot. They tell themselves, you know, as long as I have my life savings, I can make it through this. As long as I have my family, I can make it through this. As long as I have my health, I can make it through this. But all these hopes are going to fail you, and when they do, so does your perseverance. You're gone. You're not enduring. You're not persevering. Because these are false hopes. Instead, hope in the Lord. Hope in salvation. Hope in heaven. And these hopes cannot fail you. And as you do, you're going to endure. You're going to endure difficulty. Isn't this what Christ did? He endured the torment of the cross by having this future hope. It says, Hebrews 12, 2, He endured the cross for the, for the joy set before Him. And you too need this, this future-oriented, this heaven-oriented hope. And if you have that, you will persevere. Number five on our list is godliness. Verse seven, godliness. Your endurance doesn't mean much if it's not accompanied by godliness. The godliness that we saw last week in verse three is the same as here. This is that that attitude of reverence where you are aware of God in all aspects of life. And it's a lifestyle of holiness where you live as if God were always with you. And he is. It's your living as if he's right there with you. And he is. This is right up the alley of spiritual growth. And here's the thing. When you come to that point, come to that point in your spiritual life where you, you get it. You, you see your sin before a holy God. You know you have sinned against him. You, you understand. You acknowledge your just condemnation before God. But you cry out to him. You cry out for mercy. You cry for grace. You cry for forgiveness in Christ. And you come to the point where you place your faith in Christ. When you get to that point, God hears you. He answers you. He, he saves you. That's salvation. Have you been saved this morning? When that point comes, in salvation, God changes you. He transforms you 
He adopts you. He adopts you into his family. You become his child. It doesn't mean you, you become God, but you start to, at that point, you start to resemble God. The family resemblance kicks in. That's what godliness is. It's just resembling God. Growing in godliness is growing in your resemblance of God, the family resemblance. You start to resemble his character, his attributes, his will. They become your own. Godliness is resembling God. Do you resemble God? Can other people see the character of God in your life? The goodness of God, the love of God, the mercy of God in your life? Are you growing in this godliness? This is something you can and you should grow in. When you combine this desire for godliness with self-control from earlier, you get 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, which says, Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things. By the way, if you want an excuse for not going to the gym, you've got it in this verse right here. It says bodily discipline is just of a little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things. So discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. Peter speaks of this godliness over and over again. It's another thing he talks about a lot. He wants you to get this correlation. It's a simple correlation. True believers grow in godliness. It's not hard to get. True believers grow in godliness. True believers grow in godliness. When you get that correlation, it becomes a lot easier to identify false teachers. Again, a large reason why he's writing this letter. Among other things, notoriously, false teachers, they're not godly. They're not growing in godliness. It's not their goal. It's not their concern. They want nothing to do with it. But what about you? Are you aiming to grow in godliness, in attitude, in action, in character, in conduct? And are you striving to resemble God in your life? Finishing off this list of virtues to pursue, we have a pair of attributes. The last two items on this list, brotherly kindness and love. Verse 7. Now, there are two main words in the Greek for the love you should have for others. You may have heard them before, Philadelphia and agape. And these two words we have here are those two Greek words, brotherly kindness or brotherly love, Philadelphia, you know that one, and then agape, which is the word for love. So first we have, we have Philadelphia, brotherly kindness, brotherly love. Now, a true life of godliness before the Lord, it's not lived in isolation, A solitary life is not allowed before the Lord. And a hateful life is not allowed. Godliness, rather, includes a love for others. And this love, this first type, it's a warmth. It's that that affection that you have for your siblings, for those in your family. This This is a family love. And those in the church, though not related by blood, we are related by the blood of Christ. And so we become a spiritual family. And so this is saying, as you would naturally love your own family, love one another. Love one another. And in the early church, those first few years, so many people were getting saved, they were coming in, they were coming together, and the new birth, their salvation in Christ, was just springing up within them and just compelling them to love one another. They were looking out for one another. They were caring for one another. They weren't thinking twice to help one another. Financially, spiritually, you name it. They were, just, they were just loving one another. And this love that they had for those who weren't even related to them, it, it stunned the pagan world. You know, the unbelievers, they were just stunned by this. In fact, it made them mad. There's several ancient documents that show Romans criticizing and ridiculing the Christians. Like, oh, they call one another brother, but they're not even related. They're just ridiculing them for, for this love that they had at the same time, this love attracted so many people to Christ. Because what did Jesus say before he left? He told the disciples, he said, look, the world, they will come to see me as the Lord 
through your love for one another. And it should be, the way, should be that way with us. We should be showing the world that, that Christ is Lord and is true through the supernatural love that we have for one another. And this, this brotherly love naturally dovetails into, into the final virtue to pursue, which is agape love. Agape is the word for love that you see at the end of verse 7. This is a higher love. This is a selfless love. This is a sacrificial love. Agape love doesn't spring from the other person. You don't love them because they're lovable. You're not loving them because you get something back. Maybe you get a good feeling, maybe whatever. You don't love them because of what you can get in return. This love springs from your heart. It springs from a desire to simply seek their good, to meet their need. If you want to understand this love, this is the highest love, just look at God. He shows us this supreme love in saving us. I mean, why did God do it? Why did he send Christ to die for us on the cross, to redeem us, to to pay the penalty for our sins, to forgive us the debt that we owed, to save us? Well, why did he do it? What motivated God's love? It certainly wasn't us. We were his enemies. It certainly wasn't anything we did. We were sinners. It certainly wasn't because we were so lovable. Now understand this. God loved us because he is love. That's the answer. He loved us just because he is love, 1 John 4, 8. He simply desired our greatest good, even though we didn't deserve it, even though we were his enemies, even at a great cost to himself. God's love came with cost. John 3.16, for God so loved, agape, the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God's love was shown in action and it came at cost. This was a sacrificial, selfless love. God's love shows us what love is and then God's love compels us to love others in the same way. I just read you John 3.16. Look at 1 John 3.16. It says, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Just laying down your life for one another. Love sums up the law. Love sums up these seven virtues. Love sums up the goal of spiritual growth. Remember, we're looking at these, these seven virtues to pursue. What are we striving after? by God's grace, in our growth. And at the top of the tree, the highest fruit, the greatest fruit, is love. It's no accident that Peter ends this list with love. For growing out of the seedbed of faith, there's no greater fruit. Faith is the root of the Christian life, and then love is its, its greatest fruit. So do you love? Do you love others? Do you love others like God loved you? Will you lay down your life for them? Will you sacrifice for them? Will you love them even if it costs you something? Are you still going to show kindness to those who are difficult? Are you still going to lay down your life for those who are not lovable? If you want a good measuring stick for your spiritual growth, look no further than love. How are you loving others? Are you growing in Christ-like love? Like we said, all living things grow. And this fruit cannot be absent from your tree, so to speak. There's a lot more we could say about all of these Christian characteristics, but I, let me just ask what Peter asks. Are you applying all diligence to supply them? In other words, are you pursuing them? By the grace of God and the power of the Spirit, are you pursuing these these virtues, these Christian characteristics. And there's so much more to spiritual growth we could talk about, but just simply this, are you striving to be more like Christ in all ways? You need to evaluate yourself. Self-evaluation is a good thing. In fact, this leads to our last and third instruction, which comes now by way of the evaluation to consider. Thirdly now, the third instruction on spiritual growth 
from this, this little passage, the evaluation to consider from verses 8 and 9. The evaluation to consider. The diligence to grow. We started with the virtues to pursue. Now the, the evaluation to consider. Look at verse 8. We've got two evaluations here, two outcomes relating to those who possess these qualities and then those who don't. So let's start with verse 8. He says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's stop there. Let's talk about this first person. For this person, when it comes to these Christian characteristics from, from faith to love, everything in between, he says, quote, they are yours. They are yours. This person possesses these qualities. These spiritual virtues, they're a part of your life. These fruits are on your tree. They're yours. You possess them. And it's not an accident. Now, I'll tell you a bad sign. You want to know a bad sign? It's when your spouse or your family member, or your coworker comes up to you and says, hey, what's gotten into you today? You're being really loving today. That's a bad sign. They should see you as loving, you know, all the time, not once in a blue moon. Like, hey, what's gotten into you? It should be your normal behavior. Along these lines, this person possesses these fruits. It's a part of your character. And he says, also, they're increasing. They're increasing. The word is is abounding. You're abounding in these fruit. In the past, the same word is used of our old self. We used to abound in sin. But at salvation, God caused us to abound in his grace. And now because of that, we should now abound in fruit. If this describes you, he says, you are neither useless nor unfruitful. Verse 8. Useless is talking about someone who is unworking. This is a bum. This is the spiritual bum. The person who, it's not that they don't work, they just refuse to work. They don't want to work. They don't want employment. And spiritually, some people are bums. They they don't want to discipline themselves for the purpose of godliness. They don't want to do that. They're spiritual bums. But if you are growing and if you are striving, he's saying you're not like this. You are not the spiritual bum. You're not useless. He says, neither are you unfruitful. That Your tree, so to speak, growing out of the seedbed of faith, is not barren. You're not lacking fruit. Especially, he says, when it comes to the knowledge, the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there it is again. I told you, knowledge, over and over again. He talks about in Second Peter we have this word again for true knowledge. And this is the, it's that personal, relational, saving knowledge of Christ. This is, it's, not, it's not where you know about Christ. You know Christ. You know him. He's, he's not the Savior. He's your Savior. And as you grow in being like him, you know him more. Did you catch that point? Don't let that one pass you by. As you grow in being like Christ, you know Christ more. Do you care about that? Does that interest you? The phony Christian cares little about knowing Christ. They don't care about about knowing Christ. But the true believer, like Paul says, Philippians 3.8, he says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Saying everything means nothing to me in comparison to the surpassing value of just just knowing my Savior. I just want to know Him more. Believers want to know their Savior more. We look forward to the time when we see Him face to face, but for now we just want to know Him more. And look, the point is, spiritual growth accomplishes that. Spiritual growth is how you know Christ more. You, you walk his walk. You follow his footsteps. You suffer like him. You, uh, you are godly like him. And as you do so, you know him more. And that should delight your soul. And overall, with this first evaluation, if this is you, if, if this describes you in verse 8, 
that you're, you're striving, you're growing. You're not perfect, but you're moving in the right direction. And the verdict is you are pleasing to the Lord. Remember, you're not under law, but grace. You're not trying to live this perfect life in order to, to earn salvation, to get into heaven. You know, I've got to be perfect to get my way into heaven. Gotta go to church, read the Bible, do all these things to get into heaven. You're not under law. You're done with that. You can't do that. You are far from perfect, but now you're under grace through Christ. Through your faith in Christ, you're forgiven of all things and you're made perfectly righteous. Through Christ, you're under grace. That's, That's your perfection. And so now, because of that grace, with the rest of your life, you want to please the Lord. You want to love the Lord. You want to know the Lord. And your spiritual growth accomplishes that. Sadly, this doesn't describe all people. Verse 9 talks about the other side of the equation. Some fall under the evaluation given in verse 9, where he says, For he who lacks these qualities, the, the virtues we talked about, is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. This is a sharp contrast between the person in verse 8 and verse 9. The person in verse 8 was literally abounding in these fruits. The person in verse 9, barely any. You have a hard time finding just a couple fruit in their tree. Such a person, Peter says, is blind or short-sighted. Now, Peter is not actually calling this person spiritually blind, as if they're an unbeliever. That's not what he means. Literally, he says this person is blind being short-sighted, or like the ESV puts it, such a person is so nearsighted that he is blind. And what this means, well, sadly, I am the perfect illustration of what this is talking about in a physical sense. You may not know this about me, but I'm not legally blind, but I've got to be close. And I'm not joking. My eyesight is terrible. I wear contacts, so you probably don't know that. But I can see next to nothing. If I took my contacts off, I could not identify a single person from this distance. Uh, You're just blurs of color to me. When, When I go to an eye exam, and this is true, the only letter I can make, you know the eye chart? The only letter I can see is the big E. And that's largely because I know it's an E already. Like, you know it's an E. That's largely because... And I'm not joking. I can only see things close up. That's called being nearsighted or short-sighted. If I don't have glasses on or contacts, my world is three feet in front of me. Everything else is just blurred. It doesn't matter. It's nothing. It's just my world is very close. Spiritually speaking, some people are like this. And that's what, that's what Peter is saying here. Spiritually speaking, some Christians, they get caught up with the things of the world. They're not focusing on the future They're not hoping in the Lord. They're not looking out for sin and temptation coming their direction. Their focus is right in front of them. They're fixated on something right in front of them, usually something of the world. They're getting tangled with something of the world. And so they become essentially blind to everything else going on around them, including spiritual growth. They're not growing. One thing that becomes out of focus for such a person is their past calling. As Peter says, it's like they've forgotten their purification from former sins. Verse 9. They're living for the world right in front of them, but they're forgetting what Christ did for them. They're forgetting the redemption he, he procured for them, the salvation that they have. They're not paying attention to, to the mountain of spiritual resources they have to grow. They've been caught up, and they're not growing. And that's a problem for believers because they're malfunctioning. They're not doing what God saved them to do. They're not abounding in fruit, which is one of the reasons God saved us to please him. They're not walking in a manner worthy of their calling. Now a question comes up here. For such people, are they truly saved to begin with? Are people like this really true believers? Because the Bible talks about false believers all over the place. So what do we make of people like this in verse 9? It brings up the issue of assurance of salvation. How do you know you're saved? Assurance of salvation. Maybe they are true believers, and they're simply caught in the quicksand of sin. Maybe they're false believers, 
They throw around some Christian jargon. They say things, but, but their heart is not born again. Peter knows this is an issue, which is why he talks about assurance of salvation in the next two verses, verses 10 and 11. And this is an important topic, which is why next week we're going to come back and we're going to devote all of our time to just those two verses and the topic of assurance of salvation next time. But for now, just simply know this, for now, remember this, all living things grow. All living things grow. And living things want to grow. Those who are spiritually dead, they have no desire to please the Lord. They don't want to grow in Christ-likeness. They certainly do not want to discipline themselves for the purpose of godliness. You know, they can, you can go through the motions, but their heart is not in it. Their heart doesn't belong to the Lord. So if this is not you, if your heart is Christ's, he's, he's your Savior, you're striving after him, you love him, you believe in him, then take comfort. Take comfort. Now, everyone sins. All true believers still struggle with sin. But God's grace is greater than your sin. So if your heart is, is in the right place, if your heart is his, then enjoy his grace and grow because all living things grow. Pursue Christ to be like him, that you might please the Lord, that you might know the Lord, and that you yourself might be blessed in this life and the life to come. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for, for your word. Your word is truth. And I pray you might sanctify us in your truth that we all here would ourselves grow in godliness. Our desire, Lord, is by your grace, not by our own effort, but by the strength that you provide is to become like you, to resemble you. I pray that the world sees you in us and sees Christ in us, his love, his mercy, his patience, his goodness, his kindness, and his grace. May we reflect to the world, our God, that they might come to know you and the joy of salvation the blessing of of new life. May we all grow and pursue this growth and may we all have that, that good verdict that we are pleasing to you. We thank you again for Christ. We thank you for what we have in him, all of these spiritual resources, salvation, forgiveness. We have everything and it is a delight to our soul. I pray that along with Paul, we all can say that everything in this world means nothing compared to just knowing you, to knowing our Savior, to fellowshipping with you, And I pray that we take seriously this call to grow, that we might know you more and enjoy you more. Blessed be your name, and we thank you for for all things again. Bless our week to come, and may we grow in knowing you. In your name we pray. Amen.